Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1, starting in verse 10 and finishing the chapter. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As a pastor, Titus had been assigned God-given duties. They were passed on to him by Paul. These responsibilities presented him with many challenges, and I believe as you read and study this passage, God will present a challenge to you. After reading Titus 1, 10 through 16, what was your first reaction? Did you think, wow, that was harsh? <laughs> That's what I first thought. Paul describes the situation on Crete, and he doesn't pull any punches. Now, this type of teaching can be hard to swallow. Paul used words that, in our culture, would be considered impolite. But sometimes we need to hear the harsh truth. In dire situations, it's necessary to leave proper manners behind and do the right thing. Snatching up a stranger's child is totally unacceptable unless a bus was barreling down the street in the little one's direction. Then you had better grab the child and get them out of the way for their safety. Or yelling at your neighbors is a terrible way to start the day unless they're inside sleeping while the house is on fire. So in reality, Paul's harsh words come from a place of love and concern because this was the appropriate language for the situation at hand. He wrote, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Now, I can't help but draw parallels between this letter to Titus and the letter written by Jude. Jude warned the Christians in his day that some insubordinate people were invading the church. The type of people who uh, won't listen to anyone in authority. That's what insubordinate means. Uh, people who couldn't have cared less about what Paul, Titus, or another pastor had to say. Oh, sure, in public, they claimed God is our one and only authority. But inwardly, they would not even obey him. Sadly, some of these people find their way into church leadership in the form of pastors who won't allow questions from anyone. They make themselves untouchable and unapproachable. And I can't help but think, what a dangerous situation for a church. Every person in leadership, especially 
in the church needs some level of accountability. The church is not a cult where leaders have absolute power and no one can question them. Elders, deacons, and overseers each have authority and decision-making responsibility, but they all are accountable to God and to his word. They all must answer to the Bible. Titus was also dealing with uh, empty talkers and deceivers. And again, Jude, that, that short book that you could read in one sitting, Jude called these types of people clouds without water. In other words, Titus's opponents here, they said many things. Just like a cloud says, I'm going to bring some rain. But there is no rain from these type of clouds. These opponents of Titus said many things, but their words brought nothing of real meaning or substance. They were saying everything, but they were really saying nothing. I've actually heard of churches training groups of volunteers to ooh and ah during the sermon time in order to make the speaker appear more profound. Now, whatever the preacher is saying there must have such little substance that they have to ask or in some cases hire people to respond during the service. Maybe that's how it was in Titus's day, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised. More than bad, empty preaching and rebellious people, Titus was forced to confront this group called the Circumcision Party. This uh, group of people were also called the Judaizers, and according to their system, true Christian conversion took place at circumcision. If you read Acts 15.1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Not only that, they forced people to follow a strict Jewish diet and celebrate all the feasts and festivals that we find uh, in the Old Testament that were commanded of the Israelite people, that specific group, that specific time. All of a sudden, the circumcision party, the Judaizers, were trying to turn New Testament Christians into Old Testament Jews. This group and their errors had a big impact on the early church. Uh, in fact, Acts, the book, Galatians, Philippians, Jude, and now Titus each mention this particular form of false teaching. Thankfully, this group is no longer around today, saying that you must be circumcised. Um, although there are some groups that really do like the Jewish system, and they do try to force that on Christians today. I don't know if they go so far as to say you must be circumcised. But whether or not that particular type of teaching is around, the style or the spirit of that type of preaching is alive and well. Many people today will say, in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus, repent, and you have to do this, or you have to do that, or you have to do X, Y, or Z. And if someone is saying that, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, 
And then also, by the way, you have to do this five times a day. You have to go do this, whatever. That is probably some sort of false message that says you can do this on your own. You can earn this. You have to earn God's forgiveness, which is totally against so much of the New Testament. But anyway, let's move on. In this case, the add-on to the gospel was get circumcised. Yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, all that stuff, but you better be circumcised. And I'm assuming you know what circumcision is. Uh, If not, feel free to look it up at your own discretion. But there's a bit of irony here that circumcision was the requirement because Titus was not circumcised. Paul says specifically in Galatians 2, verse 3, Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Titus, not a Jew, and maybe some of the Jews thought, hey, we need to circumcise this guy. And Paul says, no, he actually never was circumcised. And yet people are showing up to Titus's church, and they're darkening the doorsteps of his buildings, and they are saying Christians need to be circumcised so they can obtain and earn salvation. According to Paul, these people must be silenced. The phrase is literally, put something over their mouth, much like you would muzzle a barking dog or a screaming child. As a lead minister in town, Titus was responsible for confronting these troublemaking teachers. There are uh, many types of of ministry which fall under the duties of a pastor. Counseling, preaching, teaching, prayer, grieving, and yes, confronting. Confrontation is a very important ministry in the life of the church. Let's uh, recall and reread the story of Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the Baptist of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila confront Apollos, even though he was doing a a reasonably good job of preaching and stuff. They said, hey, there's a more accurate way to present something. We don't really have too much detail on what aspect of his message that they confronted him about. But they did so, and um, everyone was cool with it. They did it in a successful way. Or maybe did you forget that even the Apostle Peter had to be confronted at one time? In Galatians 2.11, it says... But when Cephas, that was another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Peter, uh, one of the great preachers in the early church, had to be confronted by Paul, and that was a ministry. Now, we should be careful when we use the word confront because it might have a more aggressive meaning than we intend And the purpose of Christian confrontation is never to embarrass, hurt, or get even. Uh, We confront others only when necessary for their own good. 
If a person is caught in sin or wrong belief, it's unloving to let them continue in it. So Christians should be loving and bold enough to stop people from wreaking havoc on themselves and others. Now, this is one of the toughest jobs of any minister. And if he didn't already know, Titus was about to find out. There was a good chance the false teachers in the Cretan church would react negatively to his rebuke. A lot of people, when you confront them on anything, they don't like it. Even if you do it in a kind way, people just can't seem to accept hard truth at sometimes. Even if you present it in a gentle way, some people just can't accept being corrected. Moreover, the circumcision party and the Judaizers were great fundraisers who had built partnerships with generous donors by teaching this false man-centered message. And uh, wrong teaching about circumcision, like I said, it's practically extinct. But teaching a message that people want to hear in order to take their money more easily, that's more popular than ever. And Titus dealt with false teachers who were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, and they were upsetting whole families. Now, upsetting whole families could and likely does mean several things. Uh, to explain these things, I'll use a couple scenarios. Think about the dad of a teenage boy who comes home from a men's ministry event hosted by the Cretan church. At the event, this father picked up a new doctrine. A loud teacher and influencer had convinced this dad that he and his son need to be circumcised ASAP if they want to be true followers of God. I could only imagine how much this would upset both the teenage boy and his mother. The tension in this house will become thick enough to cut with a knife, circumcision pun intended. And this was all because of false teaching. Another way to understand how the Judaizers upset entire families is to uh, realize that at the time, churches were meeting in houses and homes. And so any sort of outlandish teaching that came into the door and affected the church would also affect the family's home where that church met. Perhaps the false teachers on the island would travel from Christian house to Christian house, taking advantage of hospitality and generosity from the Christians, only in order to spread their unhealthy beliefs. On top of that, all that stuff that Titus was dealing with, Paul warns Titus that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Imagine if a church leader made this sort of claim about a group today. He would immediately be flagged as a racist. But Paul wasn't making a racial slur. He was rather bringing up an accurate stereotype, which was first put into words by one of the Cretans, their own, uh, an own representative from their people. And Paul quotes an old poet named Epimenides. And he was from the island, and he lived around 600 B.C. In his literature, he cited the Cretans as having terribly 
bad reputations. And seven centuries later, here is Paul noting that their behavior hasn't gotten much better. Another famous figure, Cicero, he was a Roman lawyer, writer, and orator. He lived in about 100 BC. He said this about the people on Crete, the island. He said, Cretans regard highway robbery as honorable. Some readers struggle with the idea that Paul could agree with, or even cite, a Greek poet or a Roman politician. But I want you to know that all truth is God's truth. If something is true, God can use anyone to teach it. If you think about how many atheists are involved in making true scientific discoveries, for instance. Uh, now, don't worry, there are just as many Christians in science. But when an atheist person makes a true discovery, that is God using a person to bring about some of his truth. And they don't necessarily have to be a believer in order to recognize what's true. However, increasingly in our culture, unbelievers are denying what's true. So we've got this long list that Paul uses to warn Titus about how the Cretans are. And he does this character assessment on the people in Crete. And I want to ask you, and you can think about this, if Paul wrote to a pastor today, wrote a letter, what negative attributes about Americans might he warn them about? If he wrote a letter to some pastors in America and said, beware, American pastors, the people in America behave like this, this, and this. What do you think you might say? It's just a question for you to think about. What might he say about your city or your church or you? Moving on, Paul tells Titus to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The Cretans embraced bad ideas and had horrible reputations. Most people would have steered clear of such a people group that just their behavior is off the charts. But Paul sent Titus to Crete to address them head on. The place where people are the furthest away from God is the place where the gospel needs to go the most. Crete, therefore, wasn't a last resort for Titus and Paul. It was the top priority. To transform a troublesome city into a truthful church, Titus needed to rebuke the people sharply in order for them to understand the real Christian faith. He had to ensure that they were not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In this verse, your Bible may include the word genealogies, that they were devoting themselves to genealogies. A genealogy is a family tree. Now, I love learning about my family history, and thankfully this verse is not come, uh, coming against every kind of genealogy. In fact, First Chronicles begins with a genealogy. The book of Matthew begins with a genealogy. And in Luke chapter 3, there is a long 
genealogy as well. And those are passages of the Bible that contain records of a family line. Like most things in the world, though, family trees are good until someone twists them into something bad. As you can guess, the false teachers in Paul's day found a way to twist their impressive genealogies into holier-than-thou spiritual badges of honor. They believed that an impressive family tree could earn you a spot in heaven. And if you could trace your lineage back to Abraham, you were deserving of honor. You can see this attitude among the Jews when they faced off with John the Baptist. This is Matthew 3, 9. He tells them, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. There is something special about having a connection with Abraham, just not strictly in a familial sense, like he's part of your blood family. It's not limited to Abraham's bloodline. A Christian's lineage is special because we share the faith of Abraham. Romans 4.16 says, It depends on faith in order that the promised promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Today, I would ask you, how do people still, in our time, put too much emphasis on a family tree or genealogy? And I would put it like this. Too often, the question, are you a Christian, is answered with, well, I was raised in church, or my grandfather was a deacon. But we should be able to discuss our own faith as it stands now, rather than relying on the past or our ancestors' life. Paul warned Christians against relying too heavily on their family history. And he also warned against believing myths. I'm convinced that this refers to legends about Old Testament figures. The Judaizers were fascinated by the made-up stories found in the Talmud and the Apocrypha, which are two bodies of uh, writings that contain... Uh, books that some people have tried to put into the Bible over the years, but um, there's just no reason to believe they belong there. Uh, but the reason why people like these books is because they, are, they serve as a confirmation bias of the things they believe. So that's when you believe something, I've made up my mind, so now I need to go find the evidence. Rather than looking at the evidence and letting that determine what you believe, you form your opinions first and then go try to find somewhere to prove it. And that's what's happened here. People were devoting themselves to myths rather than the actual Bible. In addition to myths and circumcision, the Judaizers loved the Jewish cleaning rituals. And Paul says something most important here about that. And he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Devout Jews back in the day, uh, they might still do this today, but the devout Jews back in the day washed their hands in a very particular way before each meal. 
They'd start by pouring water over the backs of their hands. Then they'd turn it over to rinse their palms, and they recited this prayer. Thank you, God, for cleansing me and giving me clean hands. Now, they didn't stop with the hands, however. They loved to wash dishes as well. Before any cup could be used for drinking, it must have been washed in a very meticulous way. God required certain washings in the Old Testament in order to protect Israel from disease and uncleanliness. Of course, we can appreciate when someone washes dishes or their hands uh, or brushes their teeth, right? But not if it starts to become a religious thing about how holy they are, right? To the Judaizers and Pharisees, these practices weren't about personal hygiene. They had become a source of pride. While they were very meticulous about washings, these religious influencers, the Judaizers, the circumcision party, they failed to realize one thing. It doesn't matter how many cups you rinse, and it doesn't matter how many times you wash your hands. Unless God cleanses you from the inside, you will still be dirty. If your mind and heart are impure, they cannot accurately inform your conscience, and your conscience will be unable to warn you from doing wrong. But when your conscience is accurately infused with God's word and truth, it functions as the warning system God designed. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, Paul brings up part of the Christian life is holding faith and a good conscience. That being, saved and uns- uh, that being said, an unsaved person does not and cannot have a pure conscience. This is one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit provides to us when we get saved. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To the pure, all things are pure. So as long as you aren't sinning against God or your own conscience, you you want to do something your conscience tells you, don't do that. As long as you don't go against your conscience and go against God, you can do a variety of things as a Christian. But the circumcision party could not accept this. They attempted to enslave the consciences of others by convincing them that certain foods were still forbidden. They enforced the old Jewish diets. But listen to what Paul says about Christians and what they can eat. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences, there's that word, are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from fruit that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And remember, Jesus said, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. That's Matthew 15, 10, and 11. So have another look at that last verse 
of this chapter. Paul says to Titus, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You will meet many people in your life who claim to be Christians, but be warned, many of them will turn out to be false converts. Most Americans claim to have found God when they really haven't. And this is nothing new. It's been like this since at least the time of Paul. Talk is cheap. People say one thing and do the other. Christianity isn't just about a profession of faith. There must also be a possession of faith. It's not about what you say. It's about what you believe deep down. And after that, it's about what you do as a result. Your relationship to God will be evident by the fruits and works in your life. As James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In our next session, we will start Titus chapter 2.